Well, it's Father's Day, and I am preaching a sermon on trials and temptations. A very encouraging topic. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, but my hope this morning is to keep it simple and to make it practical, and I pray that it would be a big help to all of you. But at the start, what I want to do is lead us to praise the greatness of Christ, our sinless Savior. We serve a great Savior. And one of the most remarkable statements, I think, that's made about Jesus is made in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. It says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now this, of course, is remarkable for a number of reasons. Think about this. Because he is our great high priest, he is able to carry out a permanent and effectual ministry on our behalf in the heavenly most holy place. And Jesus is doing that for us right now. now. He is also able to sympathize with our weakness. So since he took on flesh in the incarnation, the scriptures tell us that he was tempted like we are tempted. In his earthly life and ministry, Jesus had experiences of resisting sin. And so even now in heaven, he continues to know what it is like for us to be tempted. And yet there is this glorious third truth about Jesus. He was without sin. And we could camp out on that truth all morning long. And all of us would be encouraged. And yet you would wonder why we read from James for our sermon scripture reading. But I want us to consider the sinlessness of Christ from this perspective as a way to introduce what we'll be looking at in James this morning. So consider this, that Christ was tempted in every way like us. This means that Jesus faced every sort of situation, every sort of trial, every sort of difficulty, every sort of person, every sort of mood that that person had, every sort of inconvenience, Every sort of representative, whatever could come in your mind, ill intention of others, he faced them all. All the things that we would face. Now maybe some of the things that we face are 21st century takes of those, but Jesus lived in our world. He walked through life like us, and yet he was without sin. For Jesus, there were no impossible situations. In every situation he faced, he was without sin. And this is half of our gospel hope, that Jesus, as our Savior sent by God, he in our place lived the life that we should have lived in perfect obedience to the Father, the life that we did not live and we are condemned for, for not doing. Jesus was tempted in every way like us, and yet he was without sin. And then the other half of our gospel hope is this, that Jesus took our place in bearing the death penalty for our sins. His death on the cross was not for his sins, but for ours. The wrath of God that was poured out was poured out for us, but it was on him, for he was without sin. And we praise God for this gospel hope. It's the reason why we sing this morning. We praise God that we have a Savior who can serve us and save us and give us new life in him by faith. And it is for this life, this Christian life, that we are called to live by faith and the strength that God provides that we should consider Jesus, who was tempted in every way like us, and yet was without sin. For we, though God is graciously conforming us 
to the image of his son. He's doing that now. And though God is sovereignly working in us to grow us in that Christ-likeness, when we are tempted, we know that so often we falter, so often we stumble, and we sin. And here's when we are tempted, through the course of everyday life. In everyday life, we are tempted to sin. In everyday life, we struggle. And in particular, we struggle in times of trial. And James has for us an important two-part lesson for the Christian life. The first part is that trials are unique opportunities to grow us in Christ, to become more like Jesus in character and in faith, to grow in ways that we wouldn't grow otherwise without those trials. That's lesson number one for us. And that's why James tells us in chapter 1, verse 2, that we should count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. A very challenging verse. But then the second part of James's teaching on trials and his critical teaching is this critical teaching that in the trials that we face, we will face danger. And that danger is the temptation to sin. And that's the topic primarily that we're going to explore this morning. How can we have joy in trials when in those trials we face the danger of temptation to sin? How can we ever face those trials head on with joy knowing that in them we will be tempted and tried? So again, the topic this morning that we're going to consider verse by verse in James is joy in trials and danger in temptations. And we'll consider that from James chapter 1 verses 13 through 18. Now this is a one-off sermon. I'm not preaching next week. I didn't preach last week. And so we want to make sure that we're being faithful to the message of James as a whole. And so I want to give you some context for this passage. Now, the book of James was written to early Jewish Christians. And James, many of you know, is the half-brother of Jesus, and he was the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. And so James is writing to his people, to his flock. And they were a people who were going through trials of various kinds. But one trial in particular, I think, is mentioned in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8 speaks of a scattering of the church in Jerusalem throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria due to a great persecution. And that great persecution was started following the martyrdom of Stephen. And that Acts tells us was overseen by a man named Saul who would later become the Apostle Paul following his extraordinary conversion to Christianity. It scattered the church from Jerusalem. And the book or this letter of James was written to shepherd and instruct his church in the variety of issues that they're going through while scattered and no longer able to assemble for worship and fellowship in Jerusalem, quite possibly following that persecution in Acts chapter 8. So that's the historical context for this letter that James is writing. So James was written to instruct the church on a variety of issues, and that first topic that he takes up is affliction or trials. James exhorts the scattered church to count it all joy, to count it all joy with what they're going through, because they should know that the testing of their faith will strengthen their faith. But they're going to need great help along the way. They're going to need wisdom, and so James exhorts them to pray to God for wisdom, 
knowing that God wants to give them wisdom, the wisdom that they will need for their Christian life, so long as they would ask without doubting. And they're going to need strength and endurance in their faith because further trials will come down the road. So that's the context that leads James to say in verse 12, the verse right before our text this morning, these comforting and yet challenging words. He says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So we see in James that there is meaning in trials, that God has a purpose. This isn't out of his control. That God's purpose is, even through trials, to grow his people in faith in ways that they wouldn't grow otherwise without those hardships. So for our text this morning, though, James acknowledges that trials are not easy. And we know that. Amen? They are difficult. Many of them are fraught with danger. And the greatest danger being that we might sin while going through trial. There is danger in trials, and knowing this ahead of time is important. It's equipping for us. Being equipped to walk through trials is of great value. So this sermon this morning is meant to be an equipping sermon for walking through trials of various kinds, for the glory of God and for the good of our faith. And James is going to be our guide. So let's look at verses 13 through 16. James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. So here's my premise, and this makes up my first point. My premise is that the good testing of our faith and the danger of temptation towards sin are both possible outcomes of the trials of various kinds that we will meet in our Christian life. In other words, there is great opportunity in every trial and there is great temptation in every trial. A trial can be a means for us to grow and that same trial can be a means for us to falter into sin. And so the key question for us when we're met with a trial is what will become of us? What will become of you? But before we dig into that question, I want you to see that my premise is true. And I want to start with a simple argument from the actual words of James. But it's going to require a little digging into the original language, which I was told to never do. James was written in Koine Greek, and Greek is not your heart language, and it's not mine either. Uh, my heart language is Texan. <laughs> All right, y'all? All I need you to do in this is to hear the similar sound of words as I go through this. And I'll pronounce them in Texan, I'm sure. So first, the word for trial is parasmos in Greek. It shows up in James chapter 1, verse 2, and also in verse 12. So just hear it. I'm going to read it in English, but when I get to that word, I'll say it in Greek. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials, parasmos, of various kinds. Then in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, parasmon. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has pr promised to those who love him. 
So what's translated into English in your Bibles as trial or trials is your same Greek word. But here's where it gets interesting. The same word is behind the words that are translated in your English Bible as tempted and tempts in verses 13 and 14, five different times. So hear it. Let no one say when he is tempted, that's paradzamenos, I am being tempted, paradzamai, by God. For God cannot be tempted, a parastos, that's a negative, with evil, and he himself tempts, paradze, no one. But each person is tempted, paradzatai, when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So that's all the Greek you're going to hear this morning. Uh, but I want you to grapple with the fact that the very same word, being translated five different times as tempted and tempts, are just verbal forms of the very same word that's the primary subject of what these Christians are facing, trials. They're facing trials and they're being tempted, and it's the same thing. They were being afflicted with trials of various kinds. In the very same trials of various kinds, they were being tested and they were being tempted. And so, in English... It may be easy for us at times to see or think that James was talking about two different subjects here in verses 3 through 12 and then in verses 13 through 18. But I think that it's actually helpful for us overall to realize that James is helping us to have a fuller understanding of the purpose of God for us when we experience trials. That there are trials that test us and strengthen our faith. And that those same trials can present danger to us to be tempted to sin. But you don't have to know the original language in order to get that point. If you know theology, including James's theology, you can understand this. James's theology, for example, is that God is sovereign and he has good and sovereign purposes for our lives. The greatest two is that we, number one, would be maximally sanctified and he aims at that. But he also aims at himself being maximally glorified. So God's purpose for us in trials is to test our faith for the purpose of making our faith stronger. And so if then you are tempted or when you are tempted, as you go through trial, God is not the one tempting you, James brings up. So James's theology in verses 13 through 18 is to see that God's aim is that we would endure trials as we go through them in order that we might grow to be more like Jesus, to receive this crown of life because he loves us. Now, we also know this experientially, that a trial can be occasion for deepening faith and honoring Christ or for faltering into sin. So you take, for example, a diagnosis with a difficult illness. That's a trial. And for some, on some days, it can be an occasion to demonstrate a wonderful trust in the Lord, for asking for help from the Lord, also a faithful thing, for sharing for those that are caring for them about the hope that they have in the Lord. But for many others still, that can be an occasion for faltering into sin. For bigger trials like that, we know that there may be days of persevering faithfulness, but then sometimes followed by days of difficult to shake off hopelessness, and that's a description, I think, of Christians going through trials. That's us going through real life, through trials. And so God, through all of this, 
has designs to conform us to the image of his son, to work out all things together for our good. And so if that's God's purpose, then what's going on when we're tempted? If it's God's aim for us to test our faith and to grow our faith, well, what's going on when we're being provoked to sin? So let me give you a definition of temptation. Temptation is an enticement or allurement to sin. Temptation is an enticement or allurement to sin. When you are tempted to sin, you are being enticed or provoked by your own desires, your disordered desires. And your desires are often being deceived in the middle of that temptation, meaning that in the moment, you may reason that sin is what you really want to do, or sin is what you really need to do, or sin is something that you're justified to do, or that it's not even sin at all. The Bible speaks of temptation as something that drags a person to the act of sin. So in other words, it can be very powerful, able to draw out our desires with great effort. And so James says that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Now when I I think of that, I I think of fishing. Now I was never much of a fly fisherman. I loved to fish, but I was never much of a fly fisherman. But I know that many who love to fish in streams, love to fly fish, they are very skilled at crafting a fly that's perfect for drawing out the hungry attention of a fish, including in different conditions, in the water, or weather above. That's the picture that I have here. Only we're the fish. And it's we who are being tempted to bite. And as fun as it is to land a trout if you're a fisherman, an angler, it's not a good thing if you're the fish being dragged away after, being, after chomping down on the fly. This illustrates for us the danger for us in temptation. And so this is why, for example, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus instructs us to pray, lead us not into temptation. And so knowing the danger that temptation presents to us, Jesus encourages us to pray, God, lead me the other way. Lead me away from temptation. Don't let me be allured to sin. And similarly, on the night of Jesus' arrest, which ended up being a trial both for Jesus and for his disciples, He instructed his disciples to pray that they would not fall into temptation. But it's at this point that James wants us to understand a very important truth when we're tempted. And the truth is that God tempts nobody. He tempts no one. So James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. And that's a precious truth. It's a truth that we can cling to. It's a truth that we can anchor to. It's a truth that we can depend on because, as James says, God cannot be tempted with evil. God cannot be tempted with evil, and this is something that is not true for us. We can be tempted with evil, but not God. It's impossible for him to be tempted with evil, which means that God cannot be tempted to do anything evil. And this is something that is also not true of us. So God never, ever does evil. He only does good. 
So Psalm 33, 5 says that he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Psalm 18, 30 says, as for the Lord, his way is perfect. So therefore he tempts no one. And this is always true. You can absolutely bank on the fact that God, if you are his child, he will never do you any harm. Now, sin harms us, and God will never lead us into sin. So as a practical application here, when going through trials, but really just generally in life, the closer that you are with the Lord, the closer that you have him, the closer your walk is with him, the greater your ability to resist temptation to sin. And your fight will be to fight against indwelling sin. Now, a lot of people, though, in the midst of trials when they sin, have thought to blame God for their problems. They might think something along the lines of this. Well, God, the reason why I did X sin is because, God, you did not do for me the Y thing that I needed. In other words, people sometimes want to scapegoat God for their own sin. And you would hope that that wouldn't be you, but Adam did it. Adam in the garden said this, and the New King James captures it especially. He says, this woman that you gave to me to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. The implication is that, God, this wouldn't have happened if you didn't give me my wife. Now, generally speaking, Proverbs says that we do this too. So Proverbs 19.3 expands on this and says, people ruin their lives by their own foolishness and then they get angry with the Lord. Or Proverbs 11.3, the integrity of the upright shall guide them, but the perverseness of the transgressors shall destroy them. So when we sin and when the consequences of sin is laid upon our lives, we hear from James that we should not say, God, it is your fault. You are to blame. James tells us that to blame God for our temptations is wrong. And so he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Now, God tempts no one through trial. That's that truth. But what is God doing then when we're going through trials? Here's what 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says. He says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So this is amazing. There's a lot packed in that one verse. So I want to unpack it for you a little bit. Number one, if we sin after being tempted, we need to realize that the temptation that's overtaken us is no greater than what's common to man. This means that we live in a fallen world and other human beings face temptations as well. Everyone experiences temptations. They're common to man. But then Christians get this precious truth. It's only for us if we're in Christ. When we are tempted, we can know that God is being faithful to us. And he will not let us be tempted beyond our ability to resist sinning. Or, if we would not be able to withstand the temptation, he will provide for us a means of escape. You know, the truth is that all of us have a breaking point. And you know this. If Job had a breaking point, then we have a breaking point because we're not as righteous as Job. 
If God intends for us to grow through trials and testing, then he intends to do exactly what's needed for us to escape sin while we're going through trials and to grow in our faith. He knows where we're at in our walk with him. And because of all of this, you can do what James commands and count it as joy when you meet trials of various kinds. But when you are tempted, you are in danger. All of us are. And this is because sin doesn't ever help us grow in our walk with Christ. Now, certainly if you respond after sinning with repentance and ask God for forgiveness, that's good. And that will help you to grow. But we don't want to give credit to sin at all for our growth in Christ. We will grow if our faith grows stronger, if we are more steadfast in our faith. But if we give way to sinful desires when we're tempted, we're faltering and we're stumbling. And so James wants us to see clearly what it looks like when we falter when tempted. And he does so by detailing for us the life cycle of sin. So look at verse 15 with me. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So this is what it looks like not only to falter, but also to cascade into the deadly effects of sin. James says that when we sin, it is because of our own desires, our disordered desires, those things that are within us, they entice or provoke us to sin. That's the danger that we're in when we're tempted. We are in danger, and the danger is essentially us or things within us, indwelling sin. Because when we give in by our desires to temptation, it sets off this chain reaction. And James uses an illustration to teach us what that's like. When we are tempted by our desires, it conceives and gives birth to a baby. But it's not a good baby. It's a baby called sin. And sin then, once it's born, will naturally grow up to its natural end, which is death. And we're along for the ride. When we sin, temptation leads to disordered desires or feeds on our disordered desires, which leads to sin and leads to death. But that's not what God is aiming at for us when we go through trials. God does not want that for us. He wants exactly the opposite. His aim for us through trials is that we will be tested in order to make our faith stronger. Like practice is for the athlete. It makes us stronger, makes us have endurance, leading ultimately to the crown of life. But I'm telling you, often we're talking about the very same trial. There aren't certain testing sort of trials that are good for your faith and certain tempting sort of trials that are for your ruin. They're all just trials. They're the things that we go through. And for every one of the trials that we face, we have the responsibility as followers of Christ to count it all joy to meet the trial, to weather it, to face temptation and fight it, and to be faithful. And God himself is committed to our good through all of this. He will always be faithful to us. He will always purpose everything in our lives for our ultimate eternal good. So why doesn't it always work out that we would remain steadfast under trial? Now, I think it's often the case that we falter into sin because we don't lean into the resources that God himself provides for us. 
Now, I, I know that may be a little simplistic because some of you have gone through trials that do feel overwhelming to you. And so I don't intend for that to be simplistic at all. But I do think that many of us try to go through trials too much by our own strength. And James would not want us to do that. And I think it's very important that we hear this. The reason why we stumble in trials most often is because we try to navigate them too much by our own strength. Or we're lacking God's wisdom when we go through it. So look at verses 17 through 18 with me. James says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So my final point is this, that we should look to God for the help that we need in trials, including the help that we need to face temptations. So God does not tempt us, but instead he absolutely helps us. Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. So brothers and sisters, when you go through trial, don't go at it alone. You're not meant to go at it alone when you're met with a trial. And this even goes for the strongest ones of us. And I want to illustrate my point by considering Paul's companion, Timothy. Uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul starts off that letter with encouragement to Timothy. And the reason why he does it is because Timothy needed it. Now, I've heard many times over the course of my Christian life some things that aren't quite true about Timothy. Uh, for example, that Timothy was very young, or that he was timid, or that he was physically weak. Now, for each one of those, you can point to a specific scripture. But I think that all of those get slightly misunderstood, usually to try to encourage us as weaker Christians. Timothy was young for a leader, but he was not a teenager. Timothy certainly had certain bouts with uh, stomach ailments, but not to the degree that Paul couldn't trust him to get the job done. Timothy uh, certainly was encouraged not to be a timid man, but he was facing some of the most difficult trials that Paul himself faced. And when Paul was thrown in prison, Timothy had to step in and do all the things that Paul was called to do. So Timothy was actually a remarkable man. Paul had no one like him except maybe Epaphroditus and Titus. Paul himself says in Philippians that he has no one like Timothy. No one like him. And yet this man, Timothy, needed encouragement in 2 Timothy. The greatest reason why Timothy needed Paul's encouragement in 2 Timothy was that it was looking as though Timothy might soon lose his father in the faith, Paul, to martyrdom because of his love for Christ. But here's how Paul encouraged Timothy. So in 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, Paul says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. 
For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in, in the suffering of the, uh, for the gospel of the, by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Now, how about that? What an encouraging letter for Timothy to receive. How would you like to get a letter like that from a brother or sister in Christ this week? It's really powerful. Now, hear how Timothy gets encouraged by Paul. Paul says, Timothy, I am praying for you. Every time I pray, I'm praying for you. I know what you're going through. I remember your tears. I wish that I could be there with you. I see Christ in you. I know that you have a deep faith like the faith of your grandmother and your mother. So even though I am in chains, Timothy, fan into flame the gift that you have. God has equipped you for ministry, Timothy. He has also given you a spirit of power, love, and self-control. With God, you can do what you're called to do. So don't shrink back from Jesus, nor from me, nor from the sufferings. It'll be worth it. Jesus saved us for his purposes. Don't you see it, Timothy? He abolished death and he brought to us immortality. Doesn't that encourage you? Don't shrink back or be afraid, my dear son. So Timothy didn't go at it alone. He had Paul to help him through. And one reason why it doesn't work out for us to remain steadfast under trial, again, is because too often we try to go at it alone without the strength that God supplies. And whenever we do that, brothers and sisters, we're going to be tempted to sin and we will be under-equipped to resist that temptation to sin and so likely we'll falter. And yet, even in that, the amazing thing is that there's still good news. The good news is that when we falter in sin in our Christian life, is that it's an opportunity for us to repent. What got us to the place of needing to repent is a bad thing, but it's always good when we repent. The amazing thing is that if you're a Christian, when you sin, God will show you his kindness through patience. And that kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, Romans 2, 4. And that's God's grace being shown to you. But James would want us to know that there's always harm done when we sin. It would be better for us that when we're met for, with a trial that we do not sin. So how can we get through those trials without sin? How would that be possible? Well, we've already talked about 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. The answer's in that verse it's to lean into God. The answer is that if God is with us as we go through trial, we will have all that we need. And so let me put it to you in two different parts. You need God to be with you, and you need to ask God for the help that you need. For example, you will need wisdom from God to bear up under trial. So James 1.5 says, if anyone lacks wisdom... Let him ask God, and he will give it generously to all without reproach. He'll give you whatever else you might need in addition to wisdom. Anything that you need, especially in trial, God will give it to you as a gift. That's the context of this wonderful verse 
or verses in 17 and 18. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. With him there is no variation or shadow due to change. So our God, who never changes and never tempts anyone, is able to supply and willing to supply everything that we need under trial. But some things that you need, they're not going to just appear like, poof, it's there. If you need it, you also need to ask him for it. Now, in C.S. Lewis's uh, series of books, The Chronicles of Narnia, the first book is The Magician's Nephew, and it's a really good book. I recently read it. Uh, there's a chapter in that book called Strawberry's Adventure. And Strawberry is the name of a horse um, who was a carriage horse in London. And he accidentally got transported into Narnia. Thankfully, he was given a better name than Strawberry at the time. Uh, he was given the ability to talk, and he was given wings to fly. And Aslan tasked Strawberry with the uh, task of taking Diggory and Polly, the kid heroes in the book, uh, to go into the western wild and find a seed and return with that seed and plant it so that the witch um, would not be able to take over Narnia. And so that's the important task. But on the way, they get tired, and so they go to sleep, and then they're hungry. The kids are hungry, and they wake up, and they see that the horse is eating a big chunk of nice grass. The horse is very much enjoying the grass. And so they're hungry, and the horse says, why don't you try some grass? And the kids look at the horse and say, we don't eat grass. And the horse says, well, then I don't know what you're going to do. But the grass is really good. And so then Diggory and Polly asked the question. They said, wouldn't someone have thought about our need for meals? Wouldn't Aslan know that? To which the horse responded, yeah, I probably would. And uh, did you ask him for it? And uh, the kids say, I didn't think that we would need to ask. And this is the important truth here. The horse responds, I have no doubt that he would know your need, but I've sort of the idea that he likes to be asked. And so James says in chapter 4, you do not have because you do not ask. Jesus says in Matthew 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For whoever asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks it will be opened. Of which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So brothers and sisters in Christ, if you know Jesus, know this. God knows you. He loves you. He knows what you need. He will supply your need generously without reproach, but he likes to be asked. So what lessons can we take from this passage in James? First, if you uh, came in this morning and you're not a Christian, you heard the gospel at the very beginning of this sermon. I would encourage you to turn from your sin and believe in Christ. If you're not sure how to do that or if you have questions about that, I'd love to talk to you after the sermon is over. Or you can reach out to somebody sitting next to you. Now, for those of you that are Christians, let me give you several applications. First, know the truth about trials. Trials are not meaningless. They are and will be a part of your life because God loves you and you need to grow. So count it all joy. 
Now, it's understandable that that would be a hard lesson to learn. None of us are eager for trials, but they are not meaningless, so count it all joy. Second, trials are for testing us. They can come in all different forms. The test, this testing is to your faith like exercise is for endurance and strength. Trials can make your faith stronger than your faith ever would be without those trials. So count it all joy. Third, trials can be occasions for temptation and therefore occasions for danger. The best way to be prepared for trials to come is to get ready for them before they come. But even then, when they come, no matter how prepared you feel, you should never go at it alone. You will need the Lord at your side, so keep him close. Ask him for what you need. Fourth, as trials can be occasions for temptation, they likewise can be occasions for sin. To avoid sinning, we should seek the Lord's help. He will provide a means of escape for us. Not from the trial, he does not say that, but from the temptation. Often the escape will be in the form of having other brothers and sisters in Christ near to you during your trial to help you with your burden. So keep your brothers and sisters close. Fifth, when we are tempted and when we sin, this one's a challenge, we must fight back any desire to blame God or blame others. Realize that sin is a problem and it's a problem still within us. And we need the Lord's help. Friends, if and when you falter in sin, the next big step is to repent and ask the Lord for forgiveness. Thankfully, 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sixth, if you are presently going through a trial, don't go at it alone. Bring others near to you. Seek the Lord. God is sovereign, God is good, and he does good. He is the help that you need in your trials, and he will work things for your good in them. And one of the great gifts of God to help you through trials is the care of other godly people. Share what you're going through. Have a pastor or a trusted brother or sister close, or both. It's in some ways what we're here for is to help one another through this life. And lastly, keep in mind that even if you're not presently going through a trial, somebody in this room close to you, sitting close to you, probably is. Your lack of reaching out can feel crushing to them. But on the flip side, your kindness, your prayers, your invitations to lunch... Your gentle words can be used as precious gifts to them as they're going through trials. We will never do this perfectly, and we will not know all that's going on. But we should act upon what we do know and seek to help. Now, I began this sermon with a meditation on the sinlessness of Christ, though he was tempted in every way like us. I know that we long to grow to be more like Jesus, more than anything else. Let's look to him for our righteousness and our salvation that can come from him alone. And let's look to him for the help that we need to grow, knowing that he is with us every step of the way, even as we are met with trials of various kinds. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word 
that comes from James chapter 1. We thank you that we can know that the trials that we face have meaning. If they did not, none of us could face them and count them as joy. But because you are sovereign and because you have good and perfect purposes for us in trials, we can count it all joy when meeting those trials of various kinds. Father, we pray for those in this church who have been weathering trials. We pray for those who have experienced job loss recently, for those who have been enduring treatments following difficult diagnoses, for those who have been struggling with difficult relationships or even struggling with temptations, for those who feel pressured in the workplace to violate their faith and conscience, and for many more besides, ones that I might not even know about. Lord, you know. Father, we pray that you would give the people in this church, the wisdom that they need to navigate their trials and their cares. We pray that you would guard their hearts from sin, lead them not into temptation, and give them the joy of seeing your work in them to be conformed to the image of your son. Lord, I pray that you would help the elders of this church to shepherd the flock, especially those going under trial. Help the members of this church to watch over one another in brotherly love as they committed to in their church covenant, to serve one another especially those going through trials. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.